Welcome to this latest edition of the Real Deal Podcast. I'm your host, of course, the Real Joe Quinn. Recording a rare, a rare Saturday podcast. We used to remember when we started out. We used to live on Saturdays in terms of recording this podcast. It was the Saturday morning wake up call. But of course, many things have changed about this podcast since then. Um, this is episode 884 of the Real Deal Podcast, and before. Of course, we get into the NBA as these conference finals have been nothing short of spectacular. All these games have been close and very you know, extremely hotly contested and certainly a lot of storylines to take from these conference finals. Uh, so up to this point, we have to pay our respects to a legendary figure in the world of athletics on and off the field. Uh, Jim Brown passed away on Thursday. It didn't come out. The news didn't come out until to, to Friday. But it, he, um, from what I, from all the reports, he passed away. Passed away on uh, late Thursday, um, and they came. It came out on Friday at the age of eighty-seven. Brown, of course, was one of the great athletes in the history of North American sports. I mean, let's let's be honest about it. It's not just you know you'll hear terms like greatest, one of the greatest running backs greatest running backs, one of the greatest football players. No, Jim Brown was one of the greatest athletes produced in North America. That's just all, like, that's it. Like, this guy was all-world in football, all-world in lacrosse at Syracuse. Like, you know, there's a, a world in where, you know, he you know he could have, if there was a professional lacrosse, you know, team, league during that time, and he joined it and played it, which he probably wouldn't have because cause football was his, you know, was uh was it for him uh, once he turned professional? Then this guy could have been maybe the greatest cosplayer of all time. Like that's how dominant of an athlete he was. He lettered in four different sports. You know, track and field, football, basketball, lacrosse at Syracuse, and was dominant in all of them. Um, you know, high school. You know, he's on teams where he averaged you know like thirty six points a game. Uh, a high school basketball player. So this guy was just you know whatever. The it factor for an athlete physically had it just had it all had it all and, and you know Jim Brown was a different type of uh, athlete from the standpoint of he was not the he was nobody's yes man or yes sir no sir that was not who he was that's not what he stood for he retired after just nine NFL seasons uh, played from fifty seven to sixty five retired in sixty five. After you know winning you know eight rushing titles in nine seasons and retired as the all-time leader in rushing yards, uh, three-time MVP, which is just unheard of for a running back. I mean, we have you know you have guys. Barry Sanders has one MVP. Adrian Peterson has an MVP. No, no running backs don't win multiple MVPs. Only only quarterbacks. You look at the course of NFL history have won multiple MVPs. They had three three MVPs as a running back just show you how shows you how dominant he was. So he retires at the age of thirty, still well in his prime because of course he was on the the uh shooting the dirty dozen. Production was running behind. Art Bordell was putting pressure on him to come back, threatening to find him. He do if he would in return the trade camp on time, he said, Cool, I'm out. That's it. And that was that. Like we never the football field never saw Jim Brown again. Went on to become a movie star, played in a number of uh Westerns and Hundred Rifles, Dirty Hundred Rifles, uh number of movies over the course of his career. Matter of fact, 
you know, let's be honest, for me as someone who wasn't born into the late 70s, 78, my first recollection of Jim Brown was as a movie star. Like, to be honest, I didn't, you know, I was too young, of course, to know about Jim Brown, the legendary football player. But my first recollection of Jim Brown was it was was on the on the, on the silver screen. It was in, in movies like The Running Man and and some of those old westerns that I used to watch with my grandfather growing up. So that was um that was uh, my first recollection of uh, Jim Brown, similar to Will Chamberlain. I didn't know Jim. I didn't know who Will Chamberlain was as a basketball player because I was too young. I knew Will Chamberlain from as Bobata in uh, Conan the Barbarian. Barbarian. That's what <laughs> that was my first recollection. Like, who's the seven footer playing this villain uh, trying to trying to kill on Schwarzenegger? So, so those two those two had those very those things in common for me personally. But you know. You're gonna hear a lot of stuff about Jim Brown uh on and off the field. Um the one thing uh he listen, it was it was the total package with Jim Brown. He did he was not like any of us without his off the field issues. Um, you know, hitting women. Uh he allegedly threw uh, a woman off the off a second floor balcony, but she recanted that statement never pressed charges against him he immediately had anger issues he dealt with a lot of his own personal demons uh over the course of uh of his lifetime he was arrested a number of times for domestic and, and physical abuse um so listen like anybody else you have to tell when you tell the story of a person you can't leave nothing out you have to tell the entire package the total story or it's just not a story without all without without that um but his off the field exploits in terms of impacting the community um have are nothing short of just spectacular the stuff the, the some of the stuff that you know he did with, with gangs some of the prison prison reform stuff that he did uh he really dedicated his life towards being towards uplifting the black community towards uh now he didn't we, you'll hear social active. You'll hear activists. Not so sure how much of an activist Jim Brown was. Jim Brown was not somebody who was out there. If you remember going back to 2020, he wasn't out there pro pushing for a protest. Okay, <laughs> Jim Brown also visited the White House with, with Donald Trump and Kanye West there. Let's just you got to keep that in mind as well. That's what I'm saying. We have to tell the entire story when you tell it with Jim Brown. Now, again, I look, I'm not calling Jim Brown saying that he was selling out to Donald Trump, but I'm just saying that it did not look good. That was not a good optic to be visiting Donald Trump. And so, so is Steve Harvey. I didn't, and I did not, I mean, at the time, I just didn't understand it why he or Steve Harvey would go to the White House to, to try to talk to somebody who could not be reasoned with. We know anything, anybody knew anything about Donald Trump. Donald Trump was not going to be reasoned with but Jim Brown felt like you know he could make a difference from that standpoint uh it didn't work out because Trump still was going to do Trump shit but you know that's you know that's Jim Brown that Jim Brown felt like that was the power of Jim Brown in terms of feeling like he could impact anything and he stood up for when he stood he stood up for you know his late friend and now uh Muhammad Ali you know Cassius Clay back in the day that famous picture with you have uh, then, um, you know, he what he did change his name Muhammad Ali at that time. So let me get that right. So you had then Muhammad Ali, Lou Alcindor, who was not Kareem at the time. It was Lou Alcindor, Bill Russell. Uh, that again, that that is one of the most famous 
uh, pictures in, you know, ever, you know, ever photograph with those guys. Um, standing, uh, standing in solitude for one Muhammad Ali after Muhammad Ali kind of lost his title because of him wanting to uh, not go uh, fight for the Vietnam War. So he stood, he was the leader of that. He was the one that, that got, that kind of got that ball rolling on that. And, you know, he, he did his own thing. He was his own man. You, no one told Jim Brown what to do. Uh, he didn't do anything that he did not want to do, per se. And uh, really one of the first athletes, one of the few athletes to be at GOAT level to retire when he wanted to retire, to walk away when he still had a lot left in the tank. I mean, we saw this with Jordan. We saw it with Wayne Dresky. Those guys, most more times than not, you know, we saw it Muhammad Ali. How difficult it is to walk away strictly, strictly on top. I mean, again, there, there are two guys that I can think of that, that did it. They both played football with Jim Brown and Barry Sanders. And as great as Barry Sanders was, and Barry Sanders to me is the best running back that I've seen in my lifetime. Barry Sanders is like not on the level with Jim Brown. Like Jim Brown, uh, as far as running backs goes, I heard Marshall Falk talking about this earlier this week. He says, we all knew. We all knew as running backs that there was Jim Brown and everybody else. Like we were just arguing for two through whatever spots. Like we like it wasn't there was never a conversation about who the greatest running back was amongst the all time great running backs. That's what that's what Marshall Falk said because we everybody Marshall Falk was like everybody knew that there was just I mean, he had his own, you know, he was in his own tier. Uh one of the great again, one of the greatest football players of all time. And a guy who, you know, when you talk about legacy his legacy will certainly will outlive him you know we'll be talking about jim brown for the next 20 30 40 50 years um uh, with all the records that he with all the things that he did on again on as well as off the field so 87 years old again you will hear a number of things over the course of the next couple of days about jim brown and there'll be you know there'll, again like, like i mentioned earlier there'll be there'll there'll be some uncovering of his personal life and again he especially in the b2 era about his bouts with domestic violence against women and again that that is what it is like when that happens uh that part of the story has to be told i mean some people might not might feel like it's disrespectful of his memory but those things happen <laughs> that's all this story he had he put his hands on women <laughs> like you know so um and you know if this if it would occur during this era, it would have been you know, it would have been broadcast to to no end. If it, if it happened, if it happened in the uh this era and this to the twenty first century, um, we would be talking about it that much more. But it definitely it definitely happened. And uh, those you know again, he like any other human being, he was not without flaws, and that's and, you know that's okay. I'm not not it's not okay to hit women, but. it's Everybody has their own flaws. Everybody has their own personal demons, and he was no different. Um, he, again, but you talk about living a full life. You talk about getting the most out of their respective years. Uh, you can't get more out of life than Jim Brown got from every aspect of it. So uh, rest in peace to the, great, you know, to the great Jim Brown, again, one of the great athletes that North America has ever produce and if you don't believe just go listen for especially for a younger audience just go look at the numbers go look at he i mean remember he played football when there were 12 most of his career all his career were played with a 12 and 14 game season he never he never, forget 7 16 16 games or now 17 games he played where again 12 and 14 game season i think the first five years of his career 
there were 12 game seasons. The last four years of his career, he played with a 14 game season and still rushed for over 12,000 yards and, and had over 126 touchdowns total between rushing and receiving. He there. He is, without question, one of the five greatest football players to ever play, um, to me, to ever play uh, in conversation. You know, again, we'll, you know, Brady, because of what he's done at the quarterback, and um, minus Tom Brady, I can put him, I can make a case that he's the greatest football player of all time. Like, the greatest non-quarterback. Let's say non, let's put non-quarterbacks for a second. Let's, let's put the quarterbacks aside. Make a case, he's in that conversation with Lawrence Taylor, Jerry Rice, um, as as the greatest non quarterback to ever play football, he's right. If if not if not number two, if not number one in terms of greatest non quarterback to ever play football, that's how dominant this man was. A shocking, I guess we shouldn't be shocked anymore, considering how just wild this postseason has been. Number seven seed, number eight seed in the conference finals. Yeah, you know. Both we have uh, a one uh, a one seed in the Eastern Conference, the team with the best record out the playoffs. So a lot of crazy things have, have happened over the course of this postseason. So I guess I, I guess it's you know my mistake or our mistake to continuously being surprised about what we see. But what but what transpired last night, I I didn't see coming. Uh, Miami goes into Boston for the second uh, straight game, takes down the Celtics one eleven to one hundred five, and they go up. Take a, a commanding two nothing uh two nothing lead over at Boston in the best of seven. Uh going home to Miami tomorrow evening um uh, for games three and of course games four on day four will be on Tuesday. Um listen, I like so when we get into the game, like you can no longer say that Miami that is outlandish if, if you can't be shocked if Miami Walks away this year with a championship. You just can't be, because the bottom line is there is no dominant team left. All these teams are flawed. Um, they have a they have right now the second best playoff player right now in the playoff player in Jimmy in Jimmy Butler. They have the, without question the best coach remaining in the playoffs. Without it's not even, and frankly, all the respect to all the other three coaches, it's not even close. And they have a mentality that is just, you know, you want to call it heat culture. You want to call them just, uh, you know, just understanding, knowing what it takes to do what it takes in the playoffs. They they have an unflappable mentality as a team. That's all there is to it. Um, looking at the game last night, uh, for the second straight game, this game was decided in one quarter, in essence, decided this game. Game three, Game, excuse me, game one, it was the 45, 45, 46 point third quarter that decided the game. And last night, it was the 36 point, 30, they outscored Boston 36 to 22 in the fourth quarter. When it seemed like Boston had taken control late in the third, early in the fourth, uh, Tatum started making shots. Even, you know, Grant Williams got going, and we'll, give, we'll talk more about that. And it seems like, you know, Miami was going to be like, you know, they'll, it'll be one of those games where Boston's going to run away with a nice 12 to 13 point victory. But Miami wasn't having it. Uh, Grant Williams makes a three. Uh, and then Miami goes on this 20 to nine run after Grant Williams makes a three and, and for whatever reason starts talking trash 
to Jimmy Butler. Jimmy, Jimmy Butler, who was six for seven against Grant Williams' defense, by the way, uh, when they were matched up, he was six for seven against Grant Williams and just abused Grant Williams. And, and again, that that to me, that just can't happen. If you're Joe Joe Mazzulla, you can't have Grant Williams on Jimmy Butler. Grant Williams is a nice defensive player, decent defensive player. I out of all the out of all the top defensive players that Boston has, I'm not putting Grant with that out. Like I'm not that matchup is not happening. Really, from a matchup standpoint, uh, Malcolm Bogdan has probably done the best job on Jimmy Butler, but it, whether you want to do Butler, whether you want to do Brogdon, or you could do Tatum, or even Jalen Brown, Grant Williams is not even coming, like, no, or even Derek White for that matter. Like, I would take any of those guys on Jimmy Butler outside of, um, but not Grant Williams. And by the way, Grant Williams, before this game, barely, barely had played, wasn't even in the rotation during these playoffs. So, they dust him off, and, you know, he, made, you know, he comes in, makes a couple shots, um, but was just destroyed defensively by one uh, Jimmy Butler after talking trash to him. Listen, Miami is just tougher. They're just tougher. They they were tougher than Milwaukee. They were tougher than New York. And they they, they are mentally tougher than Boston. That's all there is to it. Like, they, um, anytime Boston hits them with a run, they have an answer. They, you know, Bam goes out there. And to me, Bam was the best. Bam, Adebayo was the best player on the court. Um, last night, 22-17-9 with great defense. Or 22-17-9 with great defense. Bam had a big fourth quarter. Uh, the same issues that continued to plague Boston during the season when they didn't win games continued to plague them during the playoffs. It is three-point shooting or the lack thereof uh, when they lose. They were 10 for 35 from the three-point line last night. 10 for 35. This series, Boston is only shooting 31% from the three-point line. I repeat, they're only shooting 31%. Uh, you have Tatum, you had a rough day for Jalen, a rough night for Jalen Brown, 7 to 23 from the field, 16 points. Um, Tatum, you know, had a very good game. I'm Listen, I'm not going to go crazy about, like, fourth quarter Tatum. I think that, you know, that's become a narrative over the course of this, this series, I'm saying that he's disappeared during the fourth quarter because he doesn't have a field goal. He does have 11 fourth in the in the fourth quarter. He does have 11 fourth quarter free throws made in the fourth quarter in the two fourth quarters in the, in the series. So I don't not, I don't think that has been lack of aggression from Jason Tatum in the fourth quarter of the series. I think that I I look at Joe Mazzulla. I think that they have done a poor job of getting him the basketball uh, and putting him in various positions to attack Brian's defense in the fourth quarter. That's what I've seen. I can't say my I can't sit here and come up with a situation and have a situation it'd be a situation with Jason Tatum. The moment is too big for Jason Tatum and he's running away running away from the ball at the fourth quarter. That's not happening. He's cause he's getting to the line. So he's getting shots. He's getting um not like he's not getting shots up shots up. It's just the places where, you know, the places where they're not getting him the ball at the right in his, you know, quote unquote sweet sweet spots. And again, and you want to criticize Tatum saying that he really doesn't have a sweet spot as far as where to attack the defense uh, when it comes down to these close games and what have you. That's fair as well because he still has not developed a, a legit post game and, you know, that that drop dead mid-range game. That is the next step of his evolution to me is, being, is, him, is him getting a post game 
Yeah, because he's he's going to be taller and bigger than most of the players that he plays against. At you know, see, they say he's six nine, but he's, they say that he's actually closer to six ten. So that's just the next step of his game. But I'm not going to kill Jason Tatum for what he's done in this series. Um, you look at the he in this in these two games, Tatum is averaging as I look uh, look at look at now. He is this series. Tatum is at about thirty. Yeah, Tatum is at about thirty over thirty a game in this series. He's yeah, 32, 10, and 4 uh, in this series. He's averaging 32 points, 10 rebounds uh, in this series. Um, so I I can't get on him that bad with those type of numbers. Um, shooting 51%. Uh, now, again, only shooting 30% from the three-point range, but um, he is at, like, and he's been, like I said, he's been getting to the line. Like, he's been getting to, he, 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 I mean, he's been getting to the line. Um, again, 32 he is a minus on plus minus. He's a minus two and a half, but 32, uh, 32 and 10 on 51% field goal percent, 50 on 51%. That's hard to knock. Uh, now, Jillian, Jillian Brown has been a, has been, has not played well in this series though, up to this point. Only 19, only shooting 38% from, uh, only shooting 38% from the field in this series. So he has not, um, he has not produced. And to me, I look at Boston's problems. To me, they start out before I get to Miami. I look at Boston's problems. To me, their number one problem is the coach. Like I, I don't like this mentality. They have given up. You know, they're letting, again. Miami has in game one. Miami goes to 123 in regulation. They had what the 45 point third quarter. Um, they outshoot Boston. Like game one, they had uh, the 35 point third quarter. They. The, but the Boston issue to me is defensive identity. They lack a defensive identity with this coach. And when your coach, and one of the reasons why they lack a defensive identity because your coach, your head coach, is always talking about offense. Every time you go look at Joe Mazzulla's press conferences, they'll ask him, you know, and it, it really stood out to me. Now, by the way, the Boston, Boston fans have been talking about this all year long with him. So this is nothing new. Uh, if you're a Boston fans, I know I'm sounding like a broken record, but I, I don't know. Follow the Celtics as closely as, as a Boston fan because I'm not a Boston fan. But I, I watched enough Celtics games, uh, watched a number number of their games, but didn't really follow you know Joe Pizzula's, uh post game press conferences to that extent. But in the playoffs, they stood out. Uh, you go back to that game seven against Philadelphia, and yes, Tatum had 51 points, but the difference in that game was the third was a third quarter. Remember that was a tie game at halftime. A third quarter stretch where Boston outscores Miami, outscored not Miami, outscored uh, Philly thirty three to ten in the third quarter. That was the game. They outscored about twenty three points in a quarter, and helped Philly score this for over six and a half minutes. And Joe Mazzulla brings up the team's offensive spacing as being a as as being one of the key the keys uh, to getting that separation. I'm like, dude, you have the team to ten points, like. We like what are we talking about here? But so but that's who we, but that you know that is what he is. He believes in offense. Everything is about predicated around the offense, around our spacing, making threes. He's has his emphasis. He wants to get up anywhere from forty five to fifty threes a game. That's another great. That's another thing that's been key in this series. Uh, game one, they only got Miami. Miami has held them. Game one, uh, Boston got up 29 threes. In this game, they got up 35. So Miami has ran them off the 35, off the three-point line, has forced them to take some tough twos, 
or even conceded, you know, some layups at times to because they know how big of a factor the three point shot is in that Boston offense. And to me, what has happened with Boston offensively is they only have one way that they can beat you, and that's with the three point shot. And that in the playoffs, listen, in the playoffs, when you know you have the best coaches, the best players going up against the best scouting. They're, you know, a good team is going to, especially when you get to the level of conference finals or NBA finals, that's similar to what Golden State did to Boston last year. They're going to be able to take away something that you take away something that you do well. You have to be able to pivot. You have to have another way to win a basketball game when you get to this level. That's all it is to it. Like, you, know, like you can't be a one-trick pony and expect to compete and win an NBA championship. And that's the only goal Boston has left. They Boston has done everything They've been to a number of conference finals. They've been to the NBA finals last year. It's about winning a title. And coming into the series, coming into these conference finals, Boston was was uh, the favorites to win it all. Uh, one of the favorites to win it all, pure and simple. And they considered on paper, probably had the most complete team from one to you know from one to eight, one to seven, uh, with a ton of experience with uh, you know with that core that that. Uh, Taylor Brown, smart core, had been, had been, has been in a number of conference finals. Again, we're in the NBA finals last year, so everything is right was right there for Boston. Well, Milwaukee home court advantage. If if they even if they get to the NBA finals, everything is right there for Boston. But to me, I don't see a lot of people not a lot of people are not going to count Boston out. Well, I'm going to count them out. Uh, injuries withstanding, how many teams have come back from a down 0-2? when they've lost the first two games at home. Now, you had the 2017 Celtics against the Bulls in the first-round series, but you remember, Razor Rondo got hurt in that series, and that shift, that changed the whole dynamic of that series, and Boston ended up winning that series in seven games against Chicago, against Chicago in the first round. I believe that was a first-round series in 2017. Um, it, it, when standing, when another team walks into your building and takes the first two games, that tells you basically all you need to know about the direction of that series. And again, right now, Miami is playing with just unbelievable confidence. Uh, they love that whole nobody believes in us, chip on their shoulder. They are just, they're, they're, they love it. They have a top player right now who they're following. And by the way, they're getting enough, more than enough from their role players uh, on a nightly basis, like last night, you go, you look last night, you get forty out of out of uh, Caleb Barton and and uh, Duncan Robinson. One night it might be Vincent, another night it might be um, see, I'm, I'm missing the, uh, one of the other guys who has uh, Kyle Lowry, who hasn't been good in this particular series. But was Lowry did hit some big shots in Game One, but overall uh, wasn't good, really really wasn't good last night. They have a uh, Kevin Love. Uh, Kevin Kevin Love has has been good in the series at all. Uh, they've been better without without him on the court. But to my point, they have a lot of veteran players. They have veteran champions. Kevin Love is a champion. Kyle Lowry is a champion on that on that roster. And they have a tough. I mean, you know, you, Haslam doesn't play, but his presence on that bench is you know obviously they've kept him around all these years, not just because you know not just. As a as a means to do him a favor, with they his leadership and uh, this will be his last year. Of course, uh, has actually 
obviously has meant something. And if you look at Miami's run in these playoffs, they have not given up games for the most part. Like, they win games now with the exception of game two in Milwaukee where they got their doors blown off. For the most part, when they've, they've hand, they have handled prosperity as well as any team in this postseason. They win game two, they win game three and four against Milwaukee. They wrap it up in five at Milwaukee. When we all thought, including myself included, that they were going to go, that if they were going to wrap it up, it was going to be in game six in Milwaukee. You look at uh, the Knicks series, they win game one and nearly, nearly without Jimmy Butler, uh, almost win game two. They go out there uh, and finish it off in six games. I get an X credit for game five for winning game five. in New York, but even that game was tough up until you know up until up until like the fourth quarter or what have you. So, and now in this series, you know, you win game one, you figure, all right, we can relax. We got home court. No, no, no. They come out there right away and push Boston to the limit and put Boston in position to where where you want to put Boston, in, and that is in clutch situations. Uh, Boston has not been a very good clutch team that that is being you know that is five minutes with the game under five with five minutes remaining that is what the clutch you know that that defines a clutch game uh five minutes with let five with the game being um decided by five points or less or within five points or less and let's and let's be honest I mean that Boston you know Miami down the stretch of these games is just far superior in terms of execution, like Boston's offense in that fourth quarter was looking, was just all over the place. They were scattered. They looked unsure of themselves. They didn't look like they had a plan of a plan of attack, to be honest with you. Yeah, Jason Table drilling the ball, you know, 20, 30, 25 to 30 feet from the basket, trying to attack a zone defense. Like, I, they looked, again, they had a number of possessions that would go down to, like, the last – the last five seconds of the shot clock, they again they looked extremely unsure of what they of what they were trying to accomplish offensively, and I think that go I think one of the reasons for that is because you count too much on the three point shot. You count too much on the three point shot in comparison to Miami. Like, look, you know, we're going to run our offense through Jimmy Butler, we're gonna run our offense through Jimmy Butler. Either he is going to score score somebody, or he's going to make the right play to get somebody a, a, a great shot. You look at Denver, they're going to run their offense through Joker. Either he is going to get get fouled, score, or get somebody a great shot. Those two teams know who they are, uh, in particular, offensively. And know what they want to do offensively. Even with the Lakers, with their struggle, you know, with the Lakers, you know LeBron James is going to have the ball in his hands, and he's going to make plays and what have you. And, you know, they're going to, from that standpoint. But out of these four teams, Austin looks – as unsure themselves, unsure themselves offensively as any of these four teams remaining, of the final four teams remaining by far, in terms of what, especially in late game situations, they most of these again, folks, most of these games are going to be close games for the most part. You look at these conference finals; all these, all four of these games have been decided by. Uh, seven points or less, and they've all been fourth quarter games. They have they have been no blowouts. Or there have been no games that were decided. That they've all been decided in the last three to four minutes of the fourth quarter. So it comes down to knowing who you are, offensive execution, and knowing who you are, and having the ball in the play in the right, having the ball in the hands of the right player, the right players. So 
I don't see Boston coming back in the series. Can they win a game? Can they possibly get to six? Maybe. Maybe. But coming back to win the series, there's nothing that I see that would make me believe that they can come back and win this series. And again, I don't care how well they've played on the road. Miami has been great at home, you know, of course, these during this postseason. I don't well, I don't care how well Boston has has, has played uh on the road. Um now do I see a sweep? No. I think Boston will get one game in Miami. Uh we'll get one game in Miami. I don't see a sweep, but I, I just cannot see Boston coming back uh to win this series. Miami is too disciplined. They're too well coached. They have too much great leadership. Uh, and Jimmy Butler looks like a man, just frankly, looks like a man on a mission right now with with, the, with how he's playing. And Bam Albio has stepped up big time uh, over the course of the last six, five, six playoff games. You look at his numbers as going have, have gone up. He struggled at the beginning of the Milwaukee series, but ever since you know, in the last five, six playoff games, Bam they've got. Great production out of Bam. You know what you're going to get defensively out of Bam. Uh, defensively, he's an all-league defensive player of the year candidate every year. His offense can come and go, especially scoring-wise. But uh, lately, he's played extremely well. You got him going. All they need is one more player to step up, and that, that they become a dangerous, dangerous basketball team. As far as the Western Conference Finals, um, I didn't. I don't think anybody expected it to be two nothing Denver. I thought even after game one, I thought, you know, I thought Denver would win game one and the Lakers would come back in game two uh, uh, and, and, and tie that series up. I had Denver win the series in seven games. Uh, I'm not quite sure about that right now because that game two was right on the platter for the Lakers. Denver did not play well in, the, in that game. Um, when you think about it, Denver, um, you get a average jokish game. And again, this is how dominant he is. He still had triple double, but he shot nine for twenty one from the field. Shot nine for twenty one. LeBron did an excellent job on him. He was zero for six against LeBron James when they matched up. Uh, and LeBron, and that probably contributed to LeBron's uh, fatigue uh, in that fourth quarter and some of his fourth quarter struggles. Um, you get forty three combined from Hachimura and Austin Reeves. Um, you got to win that game. Uh, the key. So, this was a eighty-two to eighty-one game uh, in early, like early in the fourth quarter. Joker goes out for a sub, goes out for uh, for a rest. Um, they're up. They were uh, excuse me. They were down by one. Denver Lakers are up eighty-two eighty-one when Joker goes out. When he was turned, Denver was up by four. So they were a plus five with Joker on the bench. That can't you have that can't happen. Like that, like you cannot be earlier in the game when Joker went out, Denver was a minus eight. That's what it has to look like. Those those Joker minutes, they the Lakers have to win those Joker minutes when he's on the bench. Like they have to win those minutes. And then the floodgates open in the fourth quarter with of course Jamal Murray going berserk, twenty three points. He finishes with thirty seven. Uh LeBron James struggled. Struggles in the fourth quarter. During that time, he missed three threes. I don't know why. Again, only fatigue. That I don't know why he was settling for three point shots when they had no answer for him when he went to the when he was going to the basket. Um, but to me, that to me, when he started jacking jumpers up, that's a sign that he is is getting tired, either tired or getting tired. Um, you had three Denver starter starters in that fourth quarter who were held scoreless. Three. 
three Denver starters who are including Jokic. Jokic did not score in the fourth quarter of the game. So that's a game that the Lakers have to win when Joker is average and when it took, in essence, in essence, uh, a Jamal Murray who coming into that fourth quarter was only like five for 17, entered that fourth quarter before he went crazy. Like that's a game the Lakers just can't afford to, can't afford to lose, can't lose. Uh, D'Angelo Russell has been bad in the series. They've been a minus 41 with him on the floor in the series. I don't think this is a series for him. Be honest with you, so I'd rather go much go with I'd rather go with Stroder. Uh, I think they're gonna have to, they're gonna have to turn to Stroder. The Lakers' best lineup is Stroder, Reeves, LeBron, AD, and Hachimura. That is going to be their money lineup, especially down the stretch. That's their best lineup, their most versatile lineup, obviously and defensively. But ultimately, this comes down to to me. This comes down to what it's come down to in all these playoffs in regards to how. Whether or not the Lakers are going to win or lose is Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis, you can't go from forty to eighteen. I guess especially against this Denver team, Anthony Davis. Yeah, he had fourteen rebounds and four block shots, but you like eighteen points is not going to do it against this explosive offense against Denver because you can only you can only hold Denver down for so much for so long. They had Denver. Denver had forty eight points at half. Um. There was only one thirty-point quarter in this court in this game, and that was about Denver in the fourth quarter. They scored, ended up scoring thirty-two. Like Denver scored on only hundred eight points. That's a that's great defense. You hold Denver to one ten or less, that you're doing your job because this team is going to live in the one in the one twenties. One fifty, they're going to be around between one fifteen to one twenty-five. That's how I mean. That's how explosive they are offensively. They are a great, great offensive basketball team. That's all it is to it. So when you hold them to one at one oh eight, you gotta win that game. You gotta win that game. I thought the Lakers defense played well for the most part. I did. But you know, you go you get James and Davis between them thirteen for thirty four, that's not gonna get it done. And especially Anthony Davis. I mean, you know, LeBron was still I, I don't I think LeBron offensively had some bad took some bad shots in the fourth quarter. But he's guarding Jokic. So it's like something has to give from that standpoint. LeBron is no longer at the point of his career as a two-way player where he's going to dominate on both ends of the floor. So you're asking him to guard Jokic, especially in the fourth quarter of a of a of a of a emotional and just highly intensive Western Conference Finals game, then somebody else offensively has to step up. And, and that somebody else has to be Anthony Davis because you got again, you got 43 out of Hachimura and Austin Reeves. So they did their, they more than did their jobs. Matter of fact, through the course of this series, between the two of them, they're both, they're averaging 40 points combined between the two of them. They're doing, they've been, they, Hachimura and Reeves have been great in this series. Okay. So uh, up to this point, you, I can't ask for anything more out of them, especially on the road. But again, game two, you know, game two comes out of Anthony Davis. It's all in this toy. It comes down to Anthony Davis. Game one, uh, you're not like you're not gonna win a shootout against Denver. Like that like you just that 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 the pace was too fast. You're not winning that game against Denver. The Lakers, you we knew that the Lakers would not can't cannot keep up that level of shooting and, and offensive productivity. That's just not yeah, like like that that's just unrealistic. And I know Denver is not a good defensive team, but the Lakers are not a great offensive team. Lakers make their money, make their mark on defense. 
This has to be a defensive series if the Lakers would have any chance of winning, want to win, or have any chance of winning. If it's up and down, offensive, and the floodgates start opening, that that's where Denver is just the best in the league right now. So, listen, the first two games have been, a, you had a six-point game. They had a three-pointer to tie in game one. Game two, you had a fourth-quarter lead, and you lose a um, a five-point game. So, the series has been extremely close. Uh, the Lakers have been great at home. They've been undefeated up to this point at home. We saw Denver lose uh, back-to-back home, back-to-back road games to Phoenix. Uh, we saw them lose a road game to Minnesota in game three. So it's, it's not like Denver has been great on the road. They've been dominant on the road. But with this schedule being every other day, I, I just wonder how much gas is going to be left in the tank for the Lakers and with, with Davis and, and James. James and Davis playing the amount of minutes that they're playing, especially James, especially LeBron James. And Denver, from that standpoint, is the younger team. They are the team that wants to get down, up and down the floor. Uh, I expect the Lakers to win game three, and I think game four will tell us everything we need to, we need to know about this series. That's what I expect. If this is a close game in game three, that favors Denver. I think a close fourth quarter game, but that's why I have to get an edge to Jokic and Jamal Murray because those guys can be one of those two guys. Both of them could take over. One of them, more than likely, is going to take over in a close, in a, in a, in a very close uh, contested game. Joker will bounce back from that performance in game two. I promise you, he will. And to match, Anthony Davis has to bounce back in game three for the Lakers to, for the Lakers to have any chance. Again, this is, this is not a series for D'Angelo Russell. It's just not. I would, like, if he plays, I would keep him in that like there's no way he's sniffing thirty minutes to me. I if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm Darvin Ham, D'Angelo Russell plays between twenty and twenty five minutes. That's it. And he's not he's not gonna be a part unless he has one of those nights where he hits like a bunch of threes where he starts off high. You can tell you can tell early when 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 Russell has a go if Russell is gonna have a a good offensive game. You can tell early, and you're not keeping him there for defense. That's not his nice forte. So. I would uh, go lean towards more Stroder, lean towards more the, the defensive end, and tell Anthony Davis, you know, you know, dude, you got to be at worst the second best player on the floor. Now, because that's the thing about this, I thought for the Lakers to realistically win a championship, Anthony Davis would have to be the best player on the floor. I don't think so in, in watching these first two games because I, I think that if he's close to Jokic, if he's the second best player in the series, I think they actually would have a chance because the role players. They've gotten enough out of their role players, and LeBron's going to give you a steady dose. You know, LeBron's going to give you, you know, 23, 8, 7, and, you know, be and, and have an impact defensively, um, somewhat defensively as he has in the first two games. So uh, LeBron's going to be solid enough to give you, uh, in, terms of, uh, contrib- in terms of giving you a contribution. But it's all about Anthony Davis. Um, you can't, so far in this series, Jokic and Murray have been the two best players in this series. Can't have it can only be one. If Jokic is the best player, okay, but you can't have Jokic and Murray be number one and two be the two best players in the series. And for the Lakers to have, expect the Lakers to have any chance uh, to win this series. Now we'll see. Listen, Denver 
has crossed off. Uh, you know, you look for a team that's trying to break through and win the championship. You look for championship checkpoints. Uh, they crossed a big one. You know, with feet in the Phoenix series, winning those last two games, winning Game Six, just destroying Phoenix on the road. Uh, game two, I thought was a big one for them as well. Uh, winning that game, a defensive game, when it, it was a choppy game, it was a physical game. They had to come back. They were down double digits in the game. They had a big fourth quarter, so that was a check. That was a checkpoint. That was they're they they're, they're the first team in the playoffs to you know go up to all against the Lakers. So that was a a a minor checkpoint. Win a game where they not where they don't play necessarily great. Uh, so we'll see. If they can get to get the big checkpoint and that's take one of these next two home games, road games on against a Laker team that has been great, been dominant at home. Lakers have had have blown some people out uh at home. You think about what they did to uh the Grizzlies in games three and games um three and six. Um what they did to Golden State. In games three, and also in games six as well. So they've had some dominant performances at home. Uh, we'll see what type of listen. We're gonna learn about this early. The first quarter will tell you all you need to know about uh, this particular game. It really will. So we had to draft Lowry earlier this week, um, and of course, the Spurs. Oh, the Spurs! You get you know you get David Robinson in '87. Um, and of course, he couldn't play until '89 because he had the two. He had the uh, served a couple of years with the with the baby. You get uh, then you get Tim Duncan in '97, and you know five championships later, your franchise is is set for a an entire basically generation. Now they go out there and they get uh, Victor Wembanyama. You know, it took me three or four years to pronounce Atenakupo. So you know this one maybe take maybe maybe a year, maybe like maybe a year or two. When Yano Yama, uh, a seven foot five um, guy who, frankly, we've never seen we've never seen a player like this with this skill set with the size and skill set. Um, he's considered to be you know number one prospect in the history of the NBA. Um, better prospect. Uh, now here's here's what I'll say like. Is he a better prospect than LeBron? Yes, he is. And, you know, I, I heard that argument um, over the course of a couple of days, and you had the course of the LeBron stands just completely refute that. But there's the bottom line about when I compare him to LeBron as a high school, as a as a number one prospect. LeBron just offensively, when you look at, first of all, defensively is not in comparison. This guy, he can walk in next year and be a, a defensive player of the year candidate. Like seriously, he's that dominant defensively. So that's not even comparison. LeBron wasn't all defense in the NBA until like year five with Cleveland, talking about oh eight, oh nine season. Um, shooting, no comparison. LeBron's jump shot didn't come about until years again, three, four, or year, even years three and four. It took LeBron a number of years to develop his jump shot. This guy is walking in with with three point range, and I'm talking about catch and shoot up jump shots like stuff that LeBron did not have. Now when you give LeBron uh, you give LeBron the edge with with uh, I would say court vision passing and just physicality as far as and LeBron had an NBA body. But this guy again this guy is a seven foot five can put the ball on the floor and can be a dominant defensive player. 
Like, the, I mean, he's the, the next in terms of the evolution of basketball. He's just a better prospect. I mean, that's all there is to it. He, I mean, that's, he's just a better prospect than LeBron James was. But he is he the greatest number one prospect of all time? No. No. So I was doing a little thought exercise. And to me, thinking about who, like, the criteria for greatest prospect. What is the criteria greatest NBA prospect, like, that you had in terms of, is it like you have uh, the most attention? The guy has got the most attention. Like how, how, what, if, I don't, I don't quite understand the, the possibly criteria because if we're talking about hype, then of course it's LeBron. He grew up in the social media area era, but if we're talking about skill in terms of impact in that immediate impact. Then to me, the greatest prospect of all time is Kareem. Now you remember Kareem went to high with the college four years, played three of those years. They were freshmen were not eligible at UCLA during that during that particular time. Um, he came in ready made. Like when I mean ready made, he came in. Kareem as a rookie was twenty eight, fourteen, and four. Second team All NBA. Uh, number top three, number three in, in voting, and second team All Defense. Like you can't like that. Like, there's no topping that as a rookie. He's a rookie, right? So I, put, so I can't put LeBron. I, I can't put LeBron over Kareem from that standpoint in terms of who had the most impact on the game immediately. And no, I don't even have LeBron number two. You know, I have number two as the most number two impactful number one prospect, Tim Duncan. Tim Duncan goes to Wake Forest four years, polished offensively, defensively, the whole nine, comes in immediately, 21 12. Two and a half blocks, first team all NBA. He finished second team all defense was second team all defense and finished fifth in the MVP balloting. And immediately San Antonio went from a twenty-six win team to like a fifty I think they won fifty-six games that year before getting eliminated by Utah in the in the first round of the Western Conference in ninety eight. Of course they would win the championship the following year in that lockout shortened season. But immediately Tim Duncan is a all league MVP count. Like Tim Duncan was a legit top five player. His first year, like his first season in the NBA, he was legitimately one of the top five players in the league. And third, I have LeBron. Now, the, the Magic fans might get upset, on the, but I had LeBron third. LeBron came in straight out of high school, okay? Which, you know, and again, we're not talking about the number one high school prospect of all time. We're talking about the number one prospect of all time as far as number one picks. There's, there's a difference. If we, if we base this just strictly on high school, then LeBron clearly would be number one. I think it would be probably LeBron, you know, Garnett, Kobe, somewhere. Or maybe not even that. I mean, I'll have to do some more research on that. But LeBron would be clearly a one if we just based it off high school prospects to come out of guys to come out of uh, high school straight to the NBA. LeBron, his first year, uh, basically was 21, five and a half rebounds, almost six assists, and finished amazingly ninth at the MVP ballot and despite being on a terrible team which the Cleveland Cavaliers in his rookie season was on Warrior Terrible Team. Now, this was the only year that LeBron was not on any of the All-NBA teams and was not an All-Star. Only year of his career. So he was not an All-Star and was not on any of the All-NBA teams. I had Magic fourth. Magic came out, of course, after two years of Michigan State. Um, won a championship, beat Bird, of course, in that famous uh, game, uh, Michigan State versus Indiana State. 
Immediately, Magic was 18-7-7. He was an all-star, and of course, he was the finals MVP. Magic was not on any of the all-NBA teams, uh, and he was not even in the, did not even, was not even in a whiff within the, uh, uh, close to a, on the MVP, wasn't even on the MVP ballot. There were only nine people that I looked at, I did the research, there were only nine MVP candidates, guys that got MVP votes that year who were on, even on the ballot. Magic was not on them. Matter of fact, Magic didn't, didn't, did not get start, get, did not get uh, MVP consideration till like year three of his career. That's when he started. So, um, but I'm, I'm confident about those. Two. I like, Green, Duncan, LeBron, yeah, those are the three greatest number one prospects of all time. Now, if Wimbledon comes in next year and it was like, you know, 2010 defensive player a year candidate, eh, maybe, I'll, maybe I I can put him as an all-NBA player. Maybe he challenges LeBron for number three. I don't see him doing I Like, I don't see him passing those first two, though. Kareem and Duncan were just all-world their first year, first years in the NBA as rookies. Like, I don't. I, I don't see that, but who knows? This guy, they're talking about this guy is just this out of this world prospect. No guy has been, there's, there hasn't been a more hyped player coming out um, as a number one prospect since LeBron. So he has that going for him. He goes to a perfect situation with the Spurs. I, he cannot go to a better situation uh, as far as culture, as far as he can actually grow small market. You know, what I'm saying it is a it is a public situation. They know they will know how to handle him. Popovich, of course, Coach Duncan, Coach Robinson, Coach a number of veteran players, Coach a number of foreign players, especially French players. So I, I, they they have their pulse on that part of the game. The Spurs, no no one scouts the European has scouted European talent better than San Antonio Spurs over the court. You look at Ginobili and Parker and some of the guys they've got picked up at free agency or or free agency or, you know, off the scrap heap. Even the guy like Boris Diaw, if you remember, they are a team that 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 scouts European players better than anyone over the past uh twenty to twenty five to thirty years over the past especially in the in the very popish era. So basically the past twenty to twenty five years since he has been their coach, the general manager and coach. So uh, I think this guy to me, if I look at like his to me, his upside. I look at him like a guy who could be one of the top ten to five players of all time. He has that type of ceiling, I, and I would lean towards top five. He had like he has, and he had again. He had like Giannis. He has not been Americanized. Like I don't see this guy getting all getting all caught up in being a celebrity and all that bullshit. I, he looks like somebody who's just strictly focused on basketball, and looks like again health withstanding because we know how challenging it could be for guys that height. With the feet, the back, the knees, and what have you, he stays healthy. I think this guy, without question, will be an, an all-time great. That's going to wrap it up in this latest edition of the Real Deal Podcast. I will see you again in a couple of days as we continue to look at the NBA Finals, and we'll talk. We'll start talking about some the coaching carousel. So we didn't get into that. We'll get into that in the next podcast as well. Have a great, great rest of your weekend. So long.